0: wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line. It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
2: We all have worries. Most are due to the uncertain nature of what's coming next. That bus
1: better come. This is a big meeting, big meeting biggest of my life future of the company this bus doesn't come I could lose the deal, lose my house, lose it all. Good morning. Right on time as always.
3: Actually, uncertainty is the very essence of worry. You don't fret over what you know will happen.
1: What if I throw this brick out this window like I did yesterday and the day before, but this time it falls upwards? Nope, not going to take the chance.
2: Like everyone else, scientists worry, too, about their health, careers, marriages, parking spots. But they're also trained to observe phenomena carefully, to calibrate, to trade in facts. And scientists are trained, after all, to not be swayed by their emotional reactions to phenomena. Well, admittedly, this can have some disadvantages.
3: Hi, I'm a bikini model and biologist, and I'm new in town. Want to meet me at the beach and classify marine organisms?
1: You are aware that the probability of precipitation for coastal areas today is 98 percent? That doesn't even warrant an additional modifier of probable. It's gonna rain. Right. See ya. I mean,
2: yes? But this clear-eyed thinking also has big advantages because, well, it's clear-eyed. Many of our everyday worries can be distorted by our psychology, and scientists are trained to give an objective reading of this situation.
1: We observed two snakes on the path at a distance of 20 meters, a California king and a baby garter snake, scientific name Themnophis. And with our neuroses... OMG, the whole place was crawling with snakes. I think one was in the tree, one might have hissed at me, they were everywhere.
2: Scientists are in a privileged place to fret and stew. As trained observers of the world, they're perched in the crow's nest of society's ship. so what troubles them should trouble us and we were intrigued by a book of scientific essays called
3: What Should We Be Worried About? Real Scenarios That Keep Scientists Up At Night, edited by John Brockman. In their contributions, dozens of scientists, including Seth, described
2: what trends set off their alarms. But before you gird yourself for a list of doomsday downers, the book, just as intriguingly, asked scientists what scary scientific scenarios didn't worry them.
3: So, in this edition of Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science where we step back to get the big picture view, we ask six scientists and science writers what scientific scenario concerns them most, and to some of them, what's not going to get their stomach in a knot? After all, part of critical thinking is separating irrational worries from real concerns. I'm Molly Bentley.
2: I'm Seth Shostak. history, scientists have done research on Earth facts, tuned their theories, but they don't often voice opinions about the societal implications of their work. The exceptions are memorable.
3: Here's a dramatic one. In 1939, a small group of physicists, several of whom had fled Hitler's Germany, became worried that the Nazis would develop an atomic bomb. Leo Szilard, a Hungarian-born physicist who had conceived of the nuclear chain reaction years earlier, was persuaded to write a letter to President Roosevelt expressing their collective
2: fears. But the letter was signed by Albert Einstein, and only Einstein, because he was internationally known, he had a relationship with the Roosevelts. In the letter, Einstein expresses concern about the potential to create a runaway nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium.
1: This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed.
3: The letter pointed out that Germany now had a supply of uranium in Czechoslovakia and might be trying to develop a new kind of weapon.
2: Einstein's letter arrived a month after the war broke out. Roosevelt discussed its contents with his military advisers, and that meeting eventually led to the Manhattan Project, Building a bomb was not Einstein's idea, nor his plan for action. He was stating his concern, one shared by other physicists, about the German potential to develop this kind of weaponry.
3: Now, not all worries of scientists have such world-changing consequences, but clearly it's revealing, and sometimes important, to know what's troubling a researcher's mind.
2: So let's begin and start with biology, living systems, and in particular, us. No surprise that we're worried about the health and survival of human beings.
3: We put the question, what do you worry about, to award-winning science journalist David Quammen, who often writes about the intersection of humans and other
2: animals. A virus can sit for decades in the body of a chimp living in the African jungles, or in a bat in an Asian cave, and the world would never know the difference. The host animal wouldn't sense the internal company it keeps. But we do when it moves from another species to humans in a jump known as a spillover. Spillover. Animal Infections in the Next Human Pandemic, is the chilling title of journalist David Quammen's book, and he draws upon his research
4: around the globe when he answers the question, what are you worried about? I am worried about the possibility that a really nasty influenza could mutate and become the next big pandemic.
3: What does that mean, that an influenza could mutate and, and become a pandemic?
4: Well, influenza A, the type that infects humans... They are a very, very changeable protein group of viruses. They're single-stranded RNA viruses, and what that means essentially is they make a lot of mistakes when they replicate themselves. They mutate abundantly, they reassort their genomes, and therefore they're always changing, and therefore they evolve quickly. And that's one of the things that makes the single-stranded RNA viruses in general and the influenzas in particular dangerous.
3: So these are the viruses that are, when we hear about a a swine flu going around, such as H1N1, that's the kind of virus that you're worried could actually mutate and become more deadly, because some flus already are deadly.
4: Yes. Flus kill tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, probably around the world every year. People tend to forget or be unaware of how lethal even seasonal, routine year influenzas are. But then occasionally you get a really bad influenza. And it's probably bad because humans haven't seen anything like it before, at least in generations. So it takes their immune systems by surprise. And that's the sort of thing that can kill not just Thousands, tens of thousands of people, but hundreds of thousands and even millions of people, as, for instance, the 1918 influenza did, killing about 50 million people around the world.
3: Do we know what makes a flu virus especially deadly? Or more to the point here, how might a virus mutate and become a pandemic?
4: Well, these influenza viruses are constantly swapping parts of their genomes back and forth from one virus to another when a single person or a single animal is infected with two or more kinds at once. They pop apart and snap back together, and therefore they can come into new combinations that, for instance, might incorporate half of the genome of an influenza that's been in humans for a while and half of a genome that's just come out of wild aquatic birds, possibly by way of pigs. And that combination of the familiar and the unfamiliar can mean that it might be highly infectious among humans, but also highly virulent, highly lethal.
3: This may be straightforward, but what is the definition of a pandemic?
4: Pandemic is an infectious disease outbreak that spreads around the world. And sometimes that can mean lots and lots of deaths, but it doesn't necessarily mean lots and lots of deaths.
3: Why does this scenario keep you up at night? The idea that there could be a global pandemic of the flu. Why are you worried that that could happen?
4: Well, actually, it doesn't keep me up at at night. I worry in a rational way, because I feel that one of these is very, very possible, perhaps even likely. And yet I know how many scientists and laboratories work around the clock preparing for these things. So insofar as you're going to worry about something, I think it's one of the more important things to worry about. Let that... Worry move you toward informing yourself, move you toward supporting action. Don't waste time staying up at night. That doesn't do anybody any well, good.:
3: Well, I guess I was wondering what was informing your worry if it's because there are more people on the planet, we're traveling between countries more oh, Yes yeah. we're going into areas where we have more contact with wild animals and also domestic animals. I wonder if the conditions are changing in a way that it's making a, the case for a pandemic more urgent.
4: The answer to those questions are yes, yes and yes. There are more people, we are more interconnected, we're traveling more quickly, we're shipping products, we're shipping wildlife around the world, we're pushing our way into highly diverse ecosystems such as the tropical forest, where lots of different kinds of creatures, including lots of different kinds of new unfamiliar viruses live. Those viruses are jumping from non-human animals into humans, then they're getting passed around the world very quickly, the way the SARS virus did, and uh, all of that great interconnectedness and the disruptions that we're causing, all of those increase the likelihood that there will be a next big pandemic and that it might be a pretty alarming one.
3: And finally, well, David, are we prepared for a flu pandemic?
4: Well, we are quite prepared, but whether we're prepared enough is not something I can answer. As I said, there are some amazing scientists doing some amazing work on emerging viruses, on influenzas in particular around the world. I had a chance to meet a, quite a number of them when I was researching my book Spillover. They are very impressive people. The level of effort, the level of intelligence, the level of scientific penetration and uh, medical technological innovation, all of those levels are very high. So we should be consoled by the fact that there is an awful lot of preparation being done, and we should support that. Whether it's enough, we won't know until the next big one strikes.
3: David Quammen, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: Thanks for having me on. David Quammen is a science
2: journalist and author of many books, including Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic. He's also a contributing writer for National Geographic magazine. Well, a deadly flu that goes global is scary. However, we also heard a hopeful note in that we have the resources to stop a pandemic before it happens. And other worries that scientists have also challenge us to take action before it's too
5: late. This is Sandra Faber. I'm an astronomer at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm interim director of the University of California Observatories.
3: Professor Faber has worked with the Hubble Space Telescope and has contributed to many areas of astronomical research, including understanding how galaxies form and answering questions about dark matter. So she's used to looking at the big picture.
2: Sandy, we've been asking scientists what scientific scenarios worry them and which don't. So let's begin with what does worry you. You're an astronomer, and yet one of your big worries seems to be about the environmental sustainability on Earth. What's the worry?
5: Well, I began to think about why astronomical knowledge was important, and I decided that it's very important because it sets the backdrop against which human beings ought to be assessing our reason for what we do here on Earth. And the thing about astronomical knowledge is it tells us a couple of important things. First, that we got here via the laws of physics, and that has a profound consequence. It means that we can't appeal to any miracles to solve problems for us. We're produced by the laws of physics, and we have to live by those laws.
2: But tell me some of the implications of that in terms of, uh, you know, what's worrying you. I mean, okay, we have to live within the laws of physics. I'll buy that.
5: What worries me is that we seem to have predicated our current economic system on the existence of constant growth. And as an astronomer, I know that the Earth is finite and its resources are finite. I also know as an astronomer that if we manage things correctly, we have 100 million years or more of useful life here on this planet. And so we are faced with a terrible contradiction, namely how are we going to arrange our existence on this planet so as to thrive, but within finite resources. And I don't think we have any idea of how to do this.
2: Now, when you say 100 million years to go, that's on the basis of large-scale phenomena, I take it, like the heating up of the sun or something like that. That isn't the amount of raw material we have or energy resources or anything like that.
5: That's precisely right. There are a number of large-scale astronomical and geological calamities that we could fall subject to. But they're either rare or not a problem, and so as a result, we really have a lot of time at our disposal. What are we going to do with it?
2: Are you worried about climate change? That's maybe a short-term problem. Maybe that's not your biggest worry.
5: I would say that it's all kinds of environmental problems that are going to become acute within the next century or two. Climate change is interesting because it's produced by not consumption so much as waste, CO2 is a waste product of our energy production process. And if I could put my finger on the most important thing that worries me, it's how the Earth is going to deal with waste.
2: Well, what's your recommendation? Uh, What I read was that you would sort of cap the population at a pretty low number.
5: Yes, I think that that's the first thing that I would do. And it's actually something that can be done in a fairly short period of time. People only live for a few decades, and if you don't reproduce, then very quickly the population is going to go down. Obviously, this is completely counter to all of our genetic impulses. We got here by being aggressive, by using as many resources as we could, by going forth and multiplying, as the Bible says. And this is a good strategy as long as you're small and growing, but it's a terrible strategy if you're a mature life form that is now threatening to take over all the resources on the planet.
2: Well, I'll ask you to be quantitative. When you say a small number, how many people do you think ought to be around, say, 100 years from now or 1,000 years from
5: now? Well, I actually think that that's an excellent question for scientific study. What does it take to be a successful life form? So I think it's The most overarching problem you could possibly imagine, I don't have an answer, but I would say to be safe, I'd feel comfortable if we were making demands on the environment that are, say, 1% of what we're doing now. So roughly speaking, that means 50 million, which is sort of like the population of California, not much bigger. And it happens to be the population of the world back about in Roman times.
2: Would that be enough people that we could maintain our lifestyle? Would there be enough people doing all the things that society requires, you know, smelting iron, whatever, all those things, if we had a worldwide population of only 50 million? I think
5: we could maintain a very comfortable lifestyle. I think what is going to suffer are the rare segments of the population that do wonderful things symphony orchestras, for example, great writers, all of those trace elements in a population are going to be in much shorter supply, and that's my biggest concern, actually. I guess what I'm trying to emphasize is that this is a profound problem. This is why I'm worried. I am worried how it is that our species can live as productively and enjoyably as we do now because it really takes a lot of people to do all the wonderful things that we're doing. And yet, I don't think that we can pursue this same strategy very much longer.
2: Well, that's certainly a profound worry, as you've just said, Sandy. Is there something, some scientific question that maybe many people worry about that you don't?
5: There are probably lots of them, but the one that comes first to mind is I don't worry about GMOs.
2: Genetically modified organisms. You don't hesitate to buy them in the supermarket.
5: I like buying them and I like eating them.
2: <laughs> really? Now, where, where do you think that the, the, the disconnect between people's perception of these things and the reality is, is coming from? Is this just pseudoscience or lack of scientific appreciation, or do they have a point?
5: I think they have something of a point. I think tinkering with genomes is potentially a dangerous thing. And really, what we ought to be thinking about in order to solve my bigger problem that we just talked about, is we ought to be thinking about tinkering with the human genome. But in the meantime, I think tinkering with corn and getting corn to grow better, that's something that has short-term benefits, and I don't see that its long-term dangers are that great.
2: Sandy Faber, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
5: You're very welcome. It was fun.
3: Sandra Faber is an astronomer at the University of California, Santa Cruz.
2: Well, she certainly doesn't hesitate to take a position on controversial issues such as, you know, the long-term survival of our species or the controversy surrounding changes to our food supply.
3: Just curious, what are your positions on those issues?
2: Well, I I happen to agree with her when it comes to GMOs. Uh, When she talks about limiting the world's population to 50 million, that is so far below what we have now that I, I find that hard to imagine. Up next, more worries and things not to fret about. It's Skeptic Check, What We Worry, our monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science.
0: A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed,
2: We've heard about a couple of threats to life on this planet, but clearly there's an interplay between biology and the technology that at least one of its species has created. So the question is, will the high-tech tools of Homo sapiens save us, or are they just digging us deeper into a hole? Does personal technology really alleviate crippling solitude, or just threaten to take away our privacy? That sort of thing.
3: And as we consider the scenarios that furrow the brows of scientists and those that don't, We now turn to technological forecaster Paul Sappho, who was a contributor to John Brockman's book, the inspiration for this episode of Skeptic Check. What should we be worried about? Paul Sappho's essay, The Contest Between Engineers and Druids. Now, what that
2: means in a moment. First, what the futurist is not fretting about, although others may be.
6: Well, at the moment, I think a lot of people are worried about robots taking over humankind, and also uh, robots stealing their jobs. Okay. Uh, It sounds like uh, you're not so worried. Is a robot about to take over your job? Uh, (laughs) Actually, robots really could take over my job uh, in terms of quantitative forecasting, so I may be in trouble. More generally, the way to think about this work thing is that the fear of automation replacing work is an old one. Think of John Henry and the steam hammer, the technocrats in the 1930s. Here, however, is the reason why we shouldn't worry. What's happened for the last century is, of course, machines were replacing humans in work. That's the classic substitution of capital for labor. However, the net effect was that the automation was creating more jobs than it eliminated. And so for the last several decades, the challenge has not been unemployment, The challenge has been retraining. How do you move the people to the new jobs and train them for the new jobs? And that worked pretty well until the dot com revolution. The dot com era was the first period where, yes, in fact, we were destroying more jobs than we were creating. So you have things like Facebook, when it went public, they'd done $1.3 billion in profits the year before, they accounted for 16% of the global internet traffic and they had 2,400 employees. Facebook is not a company, it's a machine that's hired a couple of humans to walk around the halls and make sure the plugs don't fall out of the walls depriving the computers of electrons.
2: This however is a transitory phase. So what do you say to somebody who was just thrown out of their manufacturing job and doesn't know uh, Java or you know C++ or they, they don't know how to get into these new jobs?
6: Uh, this is a great social challenge. I'm not papering over the social challenge. This It is the responsibility of society and the technology sector in particular to see to it that the people displaced are treated fairly and given opportunities. So there are a lot of really interesting ideas in the wind. One of them, for example, is a guaranteed minimum income. In Switzerland at the moment, there's a referendum on the ballot that says that we want to give everybody a guaranteed minimum, of about $33,000 a year, whether they work or not. And that sounds, of course, like leftist heresy or something, um, but it's a very intriguing idea. And I actually think it's one that's going to catch on globally.
2: Well, that's something you're not worried about. You're not worried about uh, the robots taking over and eliminating all jobs. But let's talk about something that you are worried about. Uh, Your essay in the book, What Should We Be Worried About?, was entitled The Contest Between Engineers and Druids. Now, I think I know what engineers are, but I thought that the druids uh, were long gone. What do you mean by the druids
6: here? So, this is in the context of global climate change. And... The so-called climate debate has three questions, not one. The first one is, is it happening? We've established that to all satisfaction scientifically, you know, unless you're from Kansas and you're a member of the Senate. Uh, The second question is, is it human-caused? Is it anthropogenic? And, you know, pretty well settled some uncertainties. The third question that nobody's even begun to tackle is, what do we do about it? And that's where the engineer-Druid debate comes from. It breaks down as follows. Some people say we need to solve this problem by creating technologies that do dramatic things. You know, sunshades at the Lagrange point, aerosols into the high stratosphere to help block greenhouse effects, sprinkling iron dust in the middle of the Pacific to sequester carbon. These are engineers, and I use engineer as a metaphor here. These are people who are fundamentally optimistic that there is no problem that cannot be solved as long as we are given enough money and enough resources.
2: The second half are the Druids. Well, but let's, let's pause there. So the group you've described, these are the engineers. They're the, uh, the optimists, the techno fix people. But but what about the druids? Are they just erecting stones in the western well, England? What, what no, are these druids doing?
6: The, the druids, and it's a consciously provocative term, nothing against the druids. These are folks who say, no, no, the solution to this problem is we need to turn the clock back. We need to reduce our impact on the environment. We need to go more lightly. We need to reverse basically the effects of the 20th century. But these are not just superstitious types. Druids tend to be earth scientists, biologists, because you know, ask an earth scientist. Point to the Mount Everest, and what he sees is, you know, something that's going to end up as a thickening in the sedimentary layer someday when it all erodes to the sea. And biologists know that all organisms die and species evolve and die out. And like, so they're fundamentally pessimists. They say, "Look, it's it's all going to go downhill anyway, and we should preserve it." So that debate between engineer and druid
2: is just beginning to pick up steam. And so it's not that. It's a fight against people who are simply not savvy about science and technology. No, this is a very
6: sophisticated and a very legitimate argument. The engineers say we need to solve our problems by creating more of the technologies to solve the problem. The druids would say, well, you know, actually you engineers and your bright ideas got us into this problem to begin with. Why should we trust you? The engineers say to the druids, well, we can't go backwards because that's against progress and, by the way, unemployment and everything else. So what is your worry here? I
2: mean, well, is it the, simply... wor-
6: the worry is this, that we framed the argument wrong. We can't go back. We've changed the environment so much that we cannot unwind this back to pre-industrial revolution. At the same time, I am unconvinced that our technology is actually good enough to fix the problems without creating more severe unintended consequences. And I think also the metaphors are wrong. The right metaphor for this is gardening. Not so dramatic as the heroic engineer changing the world, nor the druid waving their wand and returning everything to green. But gardening is not the heroic step. It's the day-to-day tweak and adjust, tweak and adjust, look at feedback closely. The way out of the climate crisis is to say we've become, for better or worse, planetary gardeners, and we better get good at it.
2: Paul Sappho, thank you so very much for coming in and talking with us. My pleasure.
3: Paul Sappho is a technology forecaster based in the Silicon Valley. He describes the tension between technology's threat and its promise. But let's take it further. What could happen if someone else's technology allowed them to travel between the stars and pay us a visit? While a scientist who also contributed to that book of essays considers what fear that awakes in some.
2: I am Seth Shostak, Senior Astronomer at the SETI Institute. What
3: did you say that you are not
2: worried about? I wrote that I was not worried about alien invasion, particularly as a consequence of us broadcasting to the sky, broadcasting to any extraterrestrials that might be out there.
3: So that is a fear that some people have, that if we broadcast to the aliens or if we do it inadvertently as we do with our radio waves going out into space, that the aliens might respond in a violent fashion.
2: Yes. And in fact, this comes up because there are people who want to do It's called active SETI. In other words, not just sit there with earphones and listening, as we do, uh, but, in fact, broadcasting, saying, Hi, look, we're Earth, and, uh, you know, get in touch, or whatever. And people have weighed in saying, Bad idea. You don't know what's out there. Maybe most of the extraterrestrials, assuming there are any, are peace-loving, whatever. But some of them might not be. And so do you want to risk the entire planet by broadcasting? Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should just keep quiet, keep low.
3: It may not even be the content of the message that you're sending out. It's just alerting aliens to our presence here on Earth.
2: Yes. The analogy that's often made is shouting in the jungle. You don't know what's out there, and maybe most of what's out there is not the least bit interested in you. But if you shout, you've alerted them to your presence. It isn't what you shout. It's not that you say something that insults them. It's just that you've told them you're there. And for some of them, maybe just one of them, You might be considered, I don't know, a meal in the case of the jungle. But in the case of interplanetary communication, who knows what you are? Maybe just a target.
3: So why are you not worried about this possibility of extraterrestrial invasion with intent to wipe out humans?
2: Well, Stephen Hawking has weighed in on this. And that's given this whole issue a certain amount of uh, credibility that maybe it wouldn't otherwise have had. But he points out that every time you know a more advanced civilization learns about a less advanced civilization you know, usually turns out poorly for the less advanced. And he's saying maybe the same thing would happen to us because we we shout out our presence and they they come here. The reason I'm not worried about it is not that I can categorically state that they would never do that. I mean, nobody knows what these uh, aliens might be like. It's only that we have been broadcasting willy-nilly into space since the Second World War, more or less. And while those signals are not terribly strong, most of them, some of them are actually, but most of them are not, It's pretty easy to convince yourself that any society that could actually come here and, you know, do damage will have the technology to pick up those signals. So it's too late. I mean, we've already announced we're here.
3: When you say willy-nilly, you're talking about the broadcast, the radio transmissions that go out that leak off the planet to the aliens.
2: That's right. And in fact, when we air Big Picture Science, you know, it's carried by mostly FM stations. And so they're using transmitters that are high frequency, some of them are pretty high powered, and those signals, they just sail out, you know, to whatever city the transmitter is located in, but then they just sail over that last antenna at the edge of town and they just keep going in a straight line right out into space. And yes, those would be hard to find but you know our radar and some of our television are, are stronger i wonder if
3: what you're saying is it's too late there's nothing you can do about it the, the cow is already out of the pasture or
2: well the horse has left the barn i the can't horse speak has left the the, cows, the barn so.
3: perhaps the cow has already left the barn too with the horse so you're shrugging your shoulders because there's nothing we can do about it well
2: Yes. And the reason I frame it that way is not because I'm just trying to be Pollyanna or just whistling uh, through the graveyard or whatever. It's only that there are people who want want policy decisions on this that would limit broadcasting. And I find that a very troubling idea because if you say we should not do anything that makes our presence very obvious, that's going to hamstring our descendants forever. And that means you can't build giant radars, you know, that would be useful for detecting incoming asteroids. You can't build power satellites that would solve our energy problems, all of those would have enough leakage as it were, enough noise that could be picked up by beings tens, hundreds of light years away. Do you want to stop all of that forever? that That's why I think that it's very consequential if you in fact adopt a policy where you say we can't do this.
3: All right, well Seth that is what you're not worried about.
2: Yes. <laughs> However, you also have some things you are concerned about. What are you concerned about? In terms of the things that keep me up that have anything to do with science, I think the most troubling thing for me is the fact that I hear from the public quite a bit. And the public is very poorly informed about science in in general. Not everyone, obviously. Not the listeners to this show, for example. But that is troubling because in the United States, we don't have a, a tradition of respecting, if you will, academic achievement or, in, uh, you know, intellectualism and so forth. That's something that's much more valued elsewhere in the world than it is in this country. And, you know, we can't afford not to be interested in science.
3: Now, you you singled out America or the United States as being a country that doesn't revere intellectual achievement or its scientists. It, it's a general statement. But
2: is there a country that you find gets it right? Well, every country could get it better, put it that way. But, you know, having lived uh, on the continent in Europe, The Europeans consider academics in a much brighter light than we do here. I I don't want to make this sound like we don't care at all about people who are professors somewhere or have advanced degrees. Of course we do. But those are not the heroes or certainly haven't been the heroes in america america is a frontier country our our culture is based on you know tough people who could walk across the mountains and wrestle a bear to the ground and tame a wild land and all that those sometimes are sometimes all at once <laughs> simultaneously so you know you go to the movies those that's the american genre it isn't about some guy who's you know come up with something interesting in his basement but you know we, we don't have that and i think it's because it's a new country and that's fine. I mean, I, have, I love American heroes. But on the other hand, in Europe, it was true that uh, you, you got a, a great deal of respect. You got a lot of respect. If you were a third-grade teacher, you got a lot of respect. And I think that that's, that's a good thing because, you know, teachers are very important. And in the United States, I mean, teachers are just another example of how we don't value, you know, education and uh, uh, intellectual achievement quite in the same way that some of these other countries do.
3: Certainly if we gauge by how much they're paid. That's right. Seth Shostak, thank you so much for
2: being with us. It's been a real pleasure to be on Big Picture Science. I'm a fan.
3: (laughs) And you'll hear more from Seth in just a moment. In fact, you'll hear from him right now.
2: Coming up, more things that scientists either do or don't worry about.
3: It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic check. What we worry
0: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science Now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. One of the biggest science
2: stories recently has been the discovery of the first Earth sized planet that might be habitable. The name of this world, Kepler 186F, and it was found by careful analysis of data from NASA's Kepler Space Telescope. It's a big discovery. And while a large team of scientists were involved, the lead author on this paper was a young researcher at the SETI Institute, Elisa Quintana.
3: So, Elisa, what is something
7: that you're not worried about as a scientist? For the near future, I'm not worried about um, not having enough data to do new and creative work. Um, We have the Kepler mission. The four-year primary mission is complete. The extended mission had some issues with the spacecraft, um, so they're repurposing the mission. But if you just look at the four years of data, to me, it's still a goldmine that can be a source for uh, numerous PhDs over the next 10 years, I believe. I think you can stretch it out. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not worried about lack of data. That's right. I guess in terms of what I do, extrasolar planets and planetary science, stellar astrophysics, there's so much that we could still do with this data set and NASA has a few more missions after the next i don't know there might be some gap in the next 10 or 20 years that you know we have to make sure that we continue you know working on these on these large space-based satellite programs. So you're feeling optimistic that you have
3: enough data to keep you happy and working for many years into the future. All that sounds very hopeful. Yet, there is something, there is a scenario that keeps you up at night. And what is
7: that scenario? So my main worries for myself and also future young children that you know aspire to be astronomers and physicists are just funding issues. It's not a surprising worry. Everyone knows that NASA's budgets have been cut year after year, and um, just, you know, our economy in general hasn't always been, you know, on an upward trend. (laughs) So my worries are that we're trying to promote science to these young kids, you know. All the time I'm promoting science to these young girls and encouraging them to go into math and science. And, you know, once... Um, you go through school and you collect uh, student loan debt you know you hit reality and there just aren't that many jobs you always have that backfall of going into industry and but if you if you want to be you know do basic science like do chemistry or astronomy physics if you want to be in the academic world um, it's just very difficult and it's almost like people that do get jobs it's almost uh, like you win them, <laughs> it's like so competitive, and you know you're very fortunate if you if you can uh, secure a tenure position or a civil servant position.
3: Well, you mentioned basic research. what is considered basic research, and is the Kepler mission considered
7: basic research um I guess basic research i mean uh basic science uh like astronomy, yes, kepler would fall into it um versus working for a company doing specific solutions for you know what what people ask you for so you're trying to answer fundamental
3: questions about how the universe works that's right how life on this planet works and so forth that's right and that's the funding that you've seen disappear that's right i don't see anything opening up what do we lose when that goes away when basic research goes away when you have fewer scientists asking questions about and able to pursue their curiosity and all our curiosity about how the world works and the universe works.
7: I think just in general, I think if you look take a step back and look at humanity as a whole, in order to grow you want to you want to keep furthering, you know, our knowledge and answering these big questions. If you just focus on, you know, your little home and, and just details here on Earth that's fine, but I I don't think mankind as a whole can can really grow. And the question that you hope to answer with the Kepler mission: Are we alone? <laughs> personally? <laughs> or at least uh, do enough to set up um, that question so so some s- some of the younger people can and can come up and work on these future satellites and answer that while I'm still alive. <laughs> Alisa Quintana, thank you very much for coming into our studio and talking to us. Oh, thank you.
2: Elisa Quintana is a research scientist at the SETI Institute. She helped discover the planet Kepler-186f. Our last
3: scientific worry comes from a researcher who also studies deep space.
8: I'm Lawrence Krauss. I'm director of the Origins Project at ASU, that's Arizona State University, and I'm a theoretical physicist.
2: Lawrence Krauss uses mathematical models and abstractions of physical objects to explain and predict various phenomena. We'll hear how this has led him to consider a problem that really has him wringing his hands. But first, something that doesn't raise his blood pressure.
3: When scientists flipped the on switch for the Large Hadron Collider, the particle accelerator in Geneva, Switzerland, protons smashed together at velocities that were within a hair's breadth
2: of the speed of light. Worries went viral that the world's biggest atom smasher would also smash the Earth. Want to tell us why this doesn't worry you, Lawrence?
8: Yeah, sure. The public, I often hear the public is worried about a big black hole being created at the Large Hadron Collider that swallows up the Earth because that got some play for a while. And I'm happy to say that that isn't going to happen. And not only that, the Large Hadron Collider has been running, and we're still here having this interview. So uh, all of our expectations indeed were met.
2: But the Large Hadron Collider, after all, this is an extraordinarily powerful machine, and it wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that it might create micro black holes, was it? I mean, was that a completely nonsensical idea?
8: No, microscopic black holes wasn't completely nonsensical. It was just extremely unlikely. But the point is those microscopic black holes would disappear as quickly as they appeared. And that was—that's the point. They'd act like elementary particles. You know, the word black hole scares people, but a microscopic black hole goes poof about as fast as any elementary particle of a comparable mass. And so, even if they were created, and as I say, the theoretical argument for how why they should be was tenuous at best and highly unlikely, it would have been an interesting particle physics phenomena, but would have posed no threat for the Earth. And and one of the good tests of that, which we said all along was that cosmic rays are bombarding the Earth and the Moon in particular with energies far in excess of that attainable at the Large Hadron Collider. So there are collisions going on in the Moon right now that have a greater center of mass energy than occurring at the Large Hadron Collider. And the Moon is still there after 4.5 billion years. So uh, empirically, uh, I wouldn't worry.
3: Well, good. Now for what he does worry about. It has to do with the limits of scientific knowledge. In his essay, Lawrence Krauss argues that we may be thwarted in our deep understanding of the universe because we only have one data point, only one universe on which to draw.
8: Yeah, you know, we're suffering from an embarrassment of riches. When I was a graduate student, that didn't seem to be a problem at all. But we have learned so much in the last 30 years that we're coming up hard against the fact that we are able to see only what we can see and that means that since it is now likely that certain fundamental aspects of our universe are governed by quantum mechanics in the early history of time that generated the observable characteristics of the universe on the largest scale since quantum mechanics produces results measurable results which are probabilistic if we measure something and it seems slightly off what we would predict from our fundamental theories we have to ask if we're talking about the universe as a whole does that mean our theories are wrong, or are we just an outlier? Are we just in a an unfortunate or perhaps fortunate universe where in that probability distribution we're lying on the tail? And in some sense, we have to worry about whether we can ultimately address those questions. And we have been fortunate in physics to be able to do many different experiments over and over again at the Large Hadron Collider, look at billions and billions of interactions. But the universe, at least our observable universe, is an experiment that as far as we can tell, was performed once, and it's now just data analysis, and we have one experiment. And ultimately, we may have to, from that, unearth the underlying theory that may predict a, a probability distribution. In fact, everything we now know about the universe suggests there may be many more than one universe, and therefore, at least some of the laws of physics may be environmental, and the way they are, because we happen to be here to measure them. And if we lived in a universe in which those phenomena were different, well, we wouldn't live in that universe. It doesn't mean it's designed for us, it's a kind of cosmic natural selection. But that worries me that that, that we may be coming up in certain areas of physics with the empirical limits of knowledge. I think there's a lot of surprises left to come. But it, it, since it's my own area of activity, I am worried. and. And of course, I'm worried about the ultimate future of the universe, which looks miserable. But I'm not really worried about it because you and I won't be here to worry about it.
2: <laughs> well, well, look. Even if it's true that uh, okay, let's let's assume there are many universes. That's a popular idea these days. Uh, there is the question of why is our universe different from all other universes. Uh,
8: If it's different, it may be the same. We may be typical, we may not be typical. Again, but If you only have one measurement, you don't know if you're typical.
2: But can't we just do some experiments, as it were, by observing the physics of other universes? No,
8: (laughs) not directly. (laughs) But what we can do is get good evidence that there are other universes. In fact, inflation which is our best idea of what happened in the very early universe, in general predicts a multitude of, of universes. And by the way, if we are able to measure and verify inflation by looking back to the beginning of time, as we seem to now be able to do with our most recent observations of gravitational waves coming from a time when the universe was a millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old, it will give us great indirect evidence. That other universes probably exist. It will also allow us to potentially measure the kind of physics that happened in our universe and maybe get a better handle on grand unified theories which might tell us something about the kinds of different universes that might evolve. So we may never be able to see them directly but we may have enough information on the fundamental physics that we can predict not only they exist but maybe even the distribution of other universes. So it's not metaphysics. It's it's certainly potential physics.
2: Well, what about the classical Greek approach? We'll just figure it all out with pure thought. I mean, no, you're a, no. you're a theoretician. Are we smart enough to do this? No. The science is empirical. Science is empirical.
8: The universe continues to surprise us. If we locked a bunch of theoretical physicists in a room for a long time and asked them to come up with a description of the universe the answer they'd come up with is complete nonsense because we constantly are guided by the imagination of nature which far exceeds our own imagination. And pure thought doesn't do it and certainly revelation doesn't do it. In fact, you can be virtually certain that if someone has had a revelation that it's nonsense.
2: Lawrence, (laughs) but nonetheless, if you are maintaining that there's a possibility, we'll never be able to figure out why it is that our universe is so nicely set up for our own existence, that whole question then devolves into a, a religious question. No,
8: it doesn't. It just means we don't know. The stuff we don't know doesn't automatically devolve into religion unless you stop thinking. The other thing is, our universe isn't so nicely set up for our existence. It could be a heck of a lot better. In fact, most of the universe is trying to kill us every single day. And so it's amazing we've been around this long. So when people say, our universe is so finely tuned so that we can survive, well, it could be a lot better. So I get kind of tired of that argument that somehow the fact that we're able to survive and certain parameters of our universe seem to be fine-tuned so we can survive is some evidence of design. If it was, it wasn't very good design. And, of course, that's the case for all the arguments of design. If there were a designer, she would be really inept. (laughs)
2: You're not giving a heck of a lot of credit there. Well, finally... No, I'm not because uh, I try not to give credit to imaginary beings. All right. Well, finally, Lawrence, Mm -hmm. I gotta ask, do you spend a lot of energy worrying about these things or are you basically optimistic about, Uh, say, future science? I try... I'm
8: optimistic about the possibilities of learning. I'm I'm, I'm a scientist because every day uh, the world amazes me and so I spend my time not worrying about certain problems as trying to figure out how the world really works. On the other hand, I do spend a fair amount of my time talking about the need to use empirical data to try and anticipate future problems. Science has given us amazing tools that allow us to anticipate things, and as was said a long time ago, fortune favors the prepared mind. And so, yes, at some level, I worry about things, but for the most part, I'm optimistic. And even when I'm pessimistic, I like to take the advice of a good friend of mine, an author, Cormac McCarthy, who's a friend And he writes rather dark books, but when I first met him, I said to him, you know, I'm amazed what a chipper fellow you are. And he said, well, you know, I'm a pessimist, but that's no reason to be gloomy.
2: (laughs) Lawrence Krauss, thanks so much for uh, being
8: with us today. Thanks. It was a pleasure, as always.
3: Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist and director of the Origins Project at Arizona State University. Well, what's interesting about the worries of the scientists in this program is how diverse they were. On one hand slightly esoteric limits of our knowledge. And then you have the practical concerns, the funding that allows us to pursue the questions that expand our knowledge. And then you have the really practical worries that have to do with safeguarding our health.
2: Yeah, not to mention the possibility that too many people may lead to our demise. But I have to say that that's why... I found it so interesting that Lawrence Krauss talked about a problem that's truly intellectual, trying to understand the deep mysteries of the cosmos, and that we might never get to that simply because the cosmos is taking steps to make it impossible for us to learn the answers.
3: Well, and don't forget, there was a lot of hope co-mingling with these worries, the scientific scenarios that scientists don't worry about, and um, that in the things that they do worry about, they are concerns that we can address. I mean, we can actually solve some of these problems. I don't know if we can find another cosmos. (laughs) That might be the one that we can't solve. But the other ones, we could come together and solve.
2: Well, it's good to hear that there are some things that they're not worried about. That's for sure.
3: The inspiration for this episode comes from the book, What Should We Be Worried About? Real Scenarios That Keep Scientists Up At Night. It's edited by John Brockman and one of the contributors, is Seth Shostak. Thanks to our No Worries production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlock.
2: Also support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your
3: ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check, What We Worry. Skeptic Check is our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, and there's more of it and other BiPiSci episodes on
2: iTunes and through the link on our website. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, then you don't have to worry about downloads that might go awry, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, do consider letting them know you like this show.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.
6: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups. New tech